0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, Conversations for Transformation. Hello everyone, Rick Thomas here. Thank you so much for joining me for this presentation. You can find me at lifeovercoffee.com where we have conversations for transformation. Our mission statement at Life Over Coffee is, we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversation for transformation over the next few moments, I want to talk about how to help someone change. The title of this presentation is How to Help Someone Change the Encouraging Christian. The big idea in the presentation is the Lord uses the agency of humanity in the transformation process as secondary causal agents, meaning we are not the primary causal agents. We are the ones who water and plant Never the ones who give the growth. Only God can grant repentance. Only He can bring change in a person's life. If God does not activate change in the individual's life, they will not have long term sustainable change. However, in the wisdom and mystery of God, He has chosen to use human agency in that transformation process. As water boys and water girls, we have the opportunity to water and plant, trusting God to bring that change thus we are secondary causal agents what is our role in the change process that's one of the questions i'm going to deal with over the next few moments and how do we help a person change maybe you can situate your mind by picking someone someone that you would like to see change someone that you want to help Maybe it's someone that you are discipling, someone that you are doing biblical counseling with, possibly a relative, maybe a spouse, a child, or a parent. I would like for you to have someone in mind and think about how you would facilitate, how you would cooperate with God in the transformation process. How do you do it as a secondary causal agent? Maybe your spouse is stuck in a bad habit. What is the change process? This is an important question. When I was working on my master's in biblical counseling back in the late 90s, that was one of the projects I had to do, is to go to several pastors in our area and ask them about the change process. It was interesting as well as instructive. None of the pastors, and I do not mean this in a disparaging way at all, it's just a factual statement, that none of the pastors knew or had a clear explanation of how transformation happens. Realizing that, of course, I didn't have one either, and that's why I was working on my counseling degree, and that's one of the reasons I want to do this presentation. So I'm asking you the question, what is the change process? As you're helping someone, maybe they are stuck in a bad habit. You love them. You care for them. You may be married to them. How are you imitating the gospel, helping them with your courageous and gentle spirit? And so if you have someone in mind, it would be helpful if you just think about them throughout this presentation as I bring uh, several points uh, to view. And ask several practical questions about the change process specifically with the individual that you have in mind. I want to share with you six unmotivating approaches to the change process. You can see in the word unmotivating that none of these approaches will work. Perhaps you will recognize some of them that you have employed in your past, maybe even your most recent past. It could be that you employ them on a regular basis. And if that's true, well, may this be God's kindness to you to let you know that none of these approaches work. They are demotivating or unmotivating, and they will not create the outcome that you desire. And so I want to share these six with you in no particular order, and we will start with the shame approach. The shame approach is you tell them how dumb that thing is they did was you just pointed out and it has the feeling of saying that they that you are dumb and it has a shame aspect to it well they feel ashamed now we have a a term for that in our culture today is that we shame people now that can be overinflated in many people's minds and applications but it is a real thing that we can shame people and that's a bad approach if your goal is for them to change shaming them into change just will not work in a long-term way then there is the guilt approach This is where you compare a person's bad behaviors with a good one. This is the comparison idea here, where this is what good behavior is, and what you did is not it. Similar to the shame approach, and you can see how these things can overlap, where in one instance you're shaming them, and then in another you are guilting them. All of them have a gaslight aspect to them, manipulating them, Uh, To change, toward change, uh, through unbiblical, unmotivating approaches. Then there's the threat approach. It's a bit more overt, less subtle, less gaslighting, just yelling the consequences out to the person who has done something that—and it could be legitimately wrong that they have committed a sin. I am not saying or suggesting that what the person has done is okay— that's not the idea here. The idea is our methodology. It's how we are approaching them to motivate them to change. Shame, guilt, threat are not biblical approaches that we should employ. And then the fourth one is the condemnation approach. You put them down for their words or behavior. This is a A strong parenting approach that's used with authoritarian parents where the children just become smaller and smaller and smaller as they grow taller and taller and taller. It has a diminutive effect where uh, they just feel very small around the person who is always criticizing them, nagging them, being critical, or what I'm saying here, condemnation. And of course the next one is the critical approach pointing out the faults of the person it has the idea of nagging them that critical spirit You're never withholding corrective care, but we want to make sure that our corrective care has a backdrop of grace. The corrective care is the small dot on the whiteboard, and the environment of grace is the actual whiteboard. But if you are given to nagging and criticizing a person, it is death by a thousand paper cuts, and eventually that person will pull away because they too are experiencing the incredible shrinking soul as they're getting... Smaller and smaller as the nagging does that to them, cutting them down, whittling down little bit by bit. And the final approach is the cynical approach. This is the suspicious person. They did good, but you're suspicious of their motivation. Cynicism is a dastardly sin, and it can happen over years of many disappointments with an individual that they have turned over leaf after leaf, and they've never gained any spiritual momentum. They, they've they never had any sanctification, progressive, uh, progressive for, forward movement. And after a while, when they come to you and they've changed again, they got saved again, uh, you just become a little bit cynical. Now, the biblical category that is antithetical to cynicism is discernment. And so to throw cynicism out, which you should, you must replace it with something. And of course, we would replace that with discernment. We don't want to turn discernment off. But discernment is wisdom. It is also charitable, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Discernment is not suspicious. It is not cynical. And so if you are given over to becoming a or you are a cynic, then I would recommend that you pray to God, ask him to help you to repent, to put off cynicism, renew the spirit of your mind, and ask the Lord to give you discernment. So as you look at these six unmotivating approaches to change someone, might be better said to manipulate them to change, do you employ any of them? Does one of these rise higher than the other? We want to be honest about our assessments and perhaps uh, showing this screenshot, this slide here, for those of you who are watching the video, if you let someone look at this slide and have them assess you about how you help them to change, if any of these, any traces of these approaches are a part of your methodology as you help them in discipleship. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that we need to have a counterintuitive approach to people he said it this way why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye or how can you say to your brother let me take that speck out of your eye where when there is the log in your own eye you hypocrite I always like it when I read this in God's Word, you hypocrite, because it sounds so strong to postmodern ears. We have moved so far from clear speech, and we've softened our language down so much. We have trimmed the corners off so often that when we hear (laughs) words like hypocrite, it sounds so harsh because we just don't talk that way anymore. And we should, and I trust that with your most intimate circle, that your speech is more direct, you have more clarity. Again, I'm not foregoing compassion, but yet we soften our language to where we receive. We read a text like this, and it's hard to receive. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Therefore, if you employ any of those six unbiblical, unmotivating approaches, then I want you to address the log in your eye before you address the person that you're trying to motivate to change. And so with those six motivating approaches in view, how did you do? Did you see yourself in any of those approaches? As mentioned, I would appeal to you to ask a close friend, a spouse, maybe a child. Ask them their observation of you when it comes to motivating them toward change. We have asked this question to our children, especially when they were young, but yet old enough to understand the question, mature enough to process what the question was that we were asking them. And if your children are old enough and can understand it, and will answer with maturity and clarity, not in a vindictive way, Sometimes in some families the children can become so burnt out and bitter over how the family dynamics have been that you can't have a good faith conversation with them. But if you can with your child, that would be a wonderful leadership opportunity for you to get their opinion as someone on the receiving end of your corrective care. Of course, asking a friend, and most definitely if you are married, you should do this, and I strongly urge you to do it. Also recognizing that some marriages have gone so far down the road of dysfunction that it'll be a while before they can get get back to the place of this kind of mature in their conversation, but if you are in that place, then I highly recommend that you go over those six approaches with your spouse and talk about them. It could be transforming. It could be a boost to your marriage. Perhaps you will recognize things that you did not see before as your spouse brings those to your attention. Now one of the things that you want to do is you want to distinguish between patterns and episodes. We talk about that a lot at Life Over Coffee, especially with our Mastermind program as we train our students, because if there is episodic behavior, many times you can just overlook it. When would you do this? Well, an illustration would be with our children. For those of you who have reared children up through and into the teenage years, then you know that you have overlooked a lot because you're looking at a trajectory for the child. They're going from point A to point B. And if they are imperfectly heading toward point B, then as long as they're making forward progress progress, and their trajectory is heading upward toward Christ's likeness, there will be dips along the way. And many times you will just overlook those dips because the, over, the overall trajectory of their life is moving upward. It is moving forward. And in those cases, you can overlook episodes. Now, you want to clean them up. And hopefully the episodes of unmotivating corrective care, that the gap between one episode and the other will become farther and farther apart but if it is a pattern in your life that where you're doing this on a regular basis daily or several times a week, that is not an episode. That is a pattern. Now that applies to how we motivate people to change, but it also applies to all of our other words and our behaviors. And you want someone close to you who has the maturity, the courage, and the compassion to speak into your life about different episodes and patterns, whether it's motivating people or demotivating people, or any other potential sinful pattern in your life. Again, you can overlook a lot of episodes. Clean up those messes for sure. Don't let them lay around on the floor. But if there's a pattern, you have to ask God to break in and disrupt that pattern so you can put it off, renew your mind, and put on a different kind of pattern. Now, of course, these these ways, these approaches, they will work in a pragmatic sense meaning you can manipulate your children to change. When your children are little people running around the house, you can use any of those approaches, and they will salute the flag. They will stop in their tracks. They will do what you ask them to do. Generally speaking, most all children will do that. And so you if, if pragmatism is what you're after, meaning you just want the outcome, you want the results and you don't care about the methodology, well, then pragmatism will work and you can employ any of these six unmotivating approaches and they will more than likely do what you manipulate them into doing. But as you also know that if those children stay with you for an indefinite period of time, meaning up through their teenage years, after a while, they will not be manipulatable more than that or worse than that, they will begin to dissociate themselves from you, moving away, reacting to your parental care, and you will lose them altogether. And so if you're given over to pragmatism, I would appeal to you to repent of that because it's not just about the results primarily. It is also about the process, and pragmatism cannot be a steady diet as far as our process is concerned. There are times when you just have to jump in and get something done and get a particular result because there are no other options, but a pattern of pragmatism as far as trying to motivate children to change, or better said, to manipulate children to change It won't work in the long term, and we're playing the long game here, not the short game. And so we want to make sure that our short game does not become our long game. Now, you can also manipulate a spouse to change, too. But again, I would not recommend that you do that. That is unwise. It is immature. It is also lazy, and it is ungodly. The danger with pragmatism is that you can get the results but not long-term transformed lives. And I trust that the goal in all of the people that you're caring for, whether in a biblical counseling or discipleship context, in a marriage or a family, or within the church or extended family, I trust the result is long-term transformed lives, meaning there has to be another approach. One of the trip hazards that we have with using these demotivating approaches is having the right observations does not automatically mean our methods for change are correct. You see there is a formula here in this statement that you see on the screen. The formula is you have the right observation but it is a false continuum to think that just because I am observing what they are doing correctly that I am going to automatically employ the proper method to bring the change that they need. That is not always true. It can be a false formula because we can be duped into thinking because I'm right on the front end, then the process that I employ, it will be right also. And that's where we want to be careful to make sure that we're not only correct in our observations, but we are correct in our methods, in our delivery. One of the best ways, or maybe a euphemistic way, uh, to talk about the best approach in motivating someone to change, as you see here on the screen, I just simply put it in a question form, got kindness, being kind. Now, that's not the most biblically precise way to say it, but I'm saying it to be cliche uh, to be catchy. Not necessarily to be deeply rooted theological. We'll get into theology for transformation in just a moment. And and though this is a euphemistic, maybe even a shallow way of communicating, it it does make sense. Kindness is far better than any of those other six approaches. And I'm not talking about our cultural kindness that has no teeth in it whatsoever. Just be nice. And I'm not talking about that at all. There is a gushy kind of kindness that looks like niceness that approximates to our culture, and it's really something to loathe. It is something to disdain because it is too narrow, it is too shallow, it doesn't have teeth, there's no courage, there's no competence, there's no corrective care in it, and it's really not biblical kindness at all. In fact, kindness is a biblical idea, and as long as we make it theologically robust, then this terminology is not bad at all. But we will talk a little bit more about a more a better theologically precise way of communicating this. Someone might say that I tried kindness, but it did not work. I tried the best motive. I didn't use any of those other six motives, and it didn't work. Now, the question is, what's wrong with that statement? Well, it's back to pragmatism again. The reason or the motive for them trying kindness was so that they can get a result, and they did not get the result, and so they're making this negative statement here, I tried kindness, but it did not work. That's like the person who said, I tried Christianity, but it did not work. These are people who are outcome-oriented. They begin with the outcome, with the end goal, with the result in mind, and they're going to get to that result one way or the other, and they will find the right methodology, and I'll put right in air quotes because it might not be right, but they're going to find a methodology that will help them to get to their predetermined outcome. That's not how it works in Christianity. Our motive for motivating somebody to change has to be the glory of God we want to examine the motive of our heart and make sure that we loathe pragmatism and that we're not doing good things for people because there can only be one outcome and if we don't get that outcome in their lives we will not be happy and we'll keep changing our methodology until we can get that result maybe even going through all six of those unmotivating approaches to transformation so the question is are you being kind primarily for the good results that you hope to gain. I trust as you read that question that you recognize that there is an improper motive embedded in that question. We're being kind, not necessarily or not primarily for the good results that we hope to gain are you being kind primarily because you want to glorify God regardless of the results gained and that is the right question and the answer to this question is yes we're gonna be kind kind in a theological way we're gonna motivate by grace another way of saying it a better way of saying it but we're gonna do that because we want to glorify God regardless of the results gained your spouse may never change your child may never change but I'm going to do it the right way regardless. And so we want to make sure that we examine the motive of our heart as we employ these methodologies, hoping to motivate a person to change. And because we're not hanging everything on the outcome, we are free. We are released. We're not managed by what they have done We don't live in regret, or fear, or worry. We did it the right way. We did what the Bible teaches we should do. We did it primarily to glorify God, but we have left the results up to Him. This is one of the truths that I teach in our Mastermind program regularly. Our job is to water and plant. I tell people that I am not interested in change. I'm not interested in changing anyone. Don't try to change anyone. It is the most releasing concept that any biblical counselor can ascribe to. Because once you put all your uh, effort into changing a person, then you become a mini Messiah. You have transgressed the line from water to planting. giving growth, and that is a job description that is above every parent, every disciple maker, every spouse, every biblical counselor. Our job is not to change a single living soul. Our job is to water and plant, and so we are going to employ the best biblical motives of the heart and the methodologies, and we will stop right there. And if they do not change, we can rest, knowing that we have glorified God through our processes. And so examining the motive of the heart is absolutely critical. Personal blessings that come to us for loving God and others as we love ourselves. It is a thing to be praised, not an idol to be worshipped. And too often in the caregiver's mind, they are worshipping an idol. And that idol is that this person that I want to see change must change. And if they do not change, then they become frustrated, they become managed by them, they become bitter, they become angry, they become impatient, they become critical, they become gossipy, slanderous about the person who will not change. That means that you are idolizing transformation personal blessings that come to us for loving God and others as we love ourselves. It is a thing to be praised but not an idol to be worshiped. And so what we need to do is we think through those six unmotivating approaches to transformation in our corrective care. The first stop is we want a gospel recalibration. Now what do I mean by that? Well perhaps we can ask some gospel probing questions The first one is, who is the biggest sinner that you know? Maybe you can ask it this way, who is the most selfish person that you know? If you say anyone other than yourself, you might have gospel amnesia. And of course, the problem with not realizing that you're the biggest sinner that you know, or you're the most selfish person that you know, is that you will get the log and the speck reversed. There will be a speck in your eye, and then what they did wrong, what they do, what they said, that will become such a prominent theme in your life that it will distort your care for them because you will see them as the biggest sinner in the room. Now, the reason that I would say that I'm the biggest sinner in the room, I mean, to me, it seems self-evident, but I know some people have struggled over this, perhaps because of their religious background, maybe legalistic Uh, religious teaching that they don't like to think down this train Uh, this is how Paul thought in first Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 he would say that he was the foremost sinner and the reason that is so self-evident or it should be is because you know yourself better than you know anybody in the world you've been living in your head for all the years that you have been alive You're more selfish than any person that you know because you have more data on yourself than any other person that's why that's not an arguable point I'm the biggest sinner that I know I'm the most selfish person that I know because I have been living with me for many many decades now and I know myself better than I know any other person even my wife I know her better than any other person but she doesn't hold a candle to how much I know myself because I live inside of my head and I know my dark thoughts. I know my selfishness. I know how I love me. I am number one. I know how my motivations can be skewed and twisted. Now, when I say these things, I do not say them in a morbid, introspective way. I'm not about to go jump off a cliff somewhere because that's not, I'm not putting those things together. That would be a false continuum. I recognize that I am the foremost sinner, the chief of sinners. But that doesn't lead me to despair at all, because we have a gospel, we have a Christ. It is only those who do not have hope, they are the ones that are despairing, they are the ones that cannot make these honest assessments about themselves, because there's nowhere to go from there, other than to medicate yourself, other than to do some form of escape to try to make yourself feel better about yourself, even putting other people down, self-righteously critiquing people, being adverse, negative toward people. We have all sorts of machinations to make us feel better about ourselves, especially for those who have no hope. But we have a Christ. We have a gospel. And because of that, we do not perpetuate in negativity or a worm-centered, worm theology where we're just spiraling around the drain. No, we are more than conquerors through him who has redeemed us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But it does not negate the reality of who we know ourselves to be uh, without the alien righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ. But again, we can have these honest conversations because we have hope. And so who is the biggest sinner? Now, if you see yourself as the most selfish person that you've ever met, that's going to moderate, modulate. That's going to govern how you interact with other people, and you will have the log firmly planted in your eye and everything else that you do will be speck fishing. And so it's important that we have these that we understand these gospel probing questions and that the gospel is recalibrating our hearts. Maybe another way of asking the question is do you believe what someone did to you is worse than what you did to the savior? The worst sin ever perpetrated on humanity was putting Christ on the cross. He went on the cross because of you or me. Because of us, Christ was put on the cross, the biggest sin that, there ever, that could ever happen to anyone. God who took on the form of flesh died on a cross to pay for our sins, the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate sin. An infinite being sending his son to pay an infinite price for an infinite crime. There's nothing greater than that. And with that in view, with a cross-centered lens, as we're looking through that presuppositional lens at other people, then we definitely have the log in the right place and we're looking at the spec in their life and that's going to demotivate us from using unmotivated approaches because we will operate with more humility as we do corrective care. Is there someone you will not forgive attitudinally or transactionally? I'm continuing with my gospel probing questions. You will find at the bottom of most conflict, unresolved conflict in a person's life, there is a lack of forgiveness. Whether it's attitudinal forgiveness or transactional forgiveness, let me briefly explain. Attitudinal forgiveness is when you forgive them in your heart because you cannot transact forgiveness with them for example if you had a conflict with someone I typically use my father as an illustration of this he died in 1978 I became a Christian in 1984 so there was no way for us to transact forgiveness that was impossible now that he's passed away I do not want to be managed by his sin And the way that I work through that and have worked through that is that I can have a heart of forgiveness, even though I can never transact that forgiveness with him. Another illustration of that would be someone who was sexually abused. You would not put them in the same room with the person who sexually abused them for transactional forgiveness. And what you want to do with the person who is sexually abused is that you want them to come to a place to where they can have forgiveness in their heart, whether the other person asked for that forgiveness or not. The key to attitudinal forgiveness and attitude of forgiveness is to make sure that you are not controlled by what they did to you especially in cases where you cannot or is inappropriate to transact forgiveness the bottom line is we should have an attitude of forgiveness with everyone but if forgiveness is still if unforgiveness is still in our hearts then that is going to change how we talk to these other people and they will feel that, by the way. They will sense it. They will sense that you're holding on to something, that you have not let it go, either attitudinally, or you haven't transacted forgiveness. Now, transactional forgiveness is different. That's when you ask and you receive. The offended ask, or the offender, rather, asks the offended to forgive them, and the offended person forgives the offender. It is a transaction, and you can do that when it's right, when it's appropriate, when you can. Sometimes it will not be right, appropriate, or you cannot do it. And the two illustrations that I've given about sexual abuse, or maybe in the case of someone passing away, and you cannot uh, mend what was broken between you, but nevertheless, attitudinally, you can be free from it, whether they are ever free or not. Is there someone with whom you are angry, frustrated, or impatient with? Now, if you don't see yourself as the biggest center in the room, if you're not looking through a cross-centered presuppositional lens, well, then it will be easy to become angry, frustrated, or impatient with someone. And then as you go to them to talk to them, it's just not going to go well because your attitude will be wrong. The reason and motivation for our change was because of God's kindness to us when we first learned how the Father sent His Son to save us. This statement that you see on the screen is why we changed. It was our motivation for transformation. Now maybe you did not articulate it this way. I certainly didn't. I had no theological foundation, no theological understanding at all in 1984 when God regenerated me. The day that I was born again, I did not say it like what you see here on the screen, but those concepts were true to me. I recognized that God would forgive me of all my sin, past, present, and future. I recognized that I would not be condemned any longer, that God would not hold my sins against me. I believed that God would send me to heaven, uh, would allow me to enter into heaven after I passed away. Now, I didn't have theological terms for any of these things, but I was learning these things, these concepts, in a layman's kind of way, using different words, phrases, sentences, and language. But it basically communicated all that I've just shared with you. And as I began to think about God forgiving me of all my sin, releasing me from them, not condemning me, justifying me, declaring me not guilty, and preparing a place in heaven for me, I thought, wow, that is the ultimate kindness that anyone would ever do for any other person. And it was the kindness of God that led to my repentance. It was the kindness of God that led to my transformation. Now, that is why I'm using the word kindness here as a deeply rich, robust theological word. We can also use the word in a haphazard, sloppy, gushy kind of way, the way the culture does with no teeth in it. But the kindness of God is rich and robust. The kindness of God puts a man on a tree. The kindness of God allows you to enter into heaven. The kindness of God forgives all of your sins. And when you hear that kind of kindness, he didn't shame me, he didn't guilt me, he didn't threaten me, he didn't condemn me, he didn't criticize me, and he wasn't cynical of me. He didn't use any of those six former approaches. It was the kindness of God that led to repentance. And so if you want to help someone to change, my highest recommendation is that you emulate God. As Paul said in Ephesians 5, as beloved children, imitate, emulate God. And we want to do that, recognizing that the kindness of God leads to repentance, as we see here in Romans chapter 2, verse number 4. I'll share the verse with you. Paul says, do you presume, meaning, do you take for granted, do you take these things for granted? What things is he talking about? He's talking about God's riches, and he starts stacking one on top of the other, and he only shares three with us, even though God's riches extend much further than these three. Do you take for granted God's riches, riches of his kindness, riches of his forbearance, riches of his patience and then he selects one of those and says not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance and so here are three ways to motivate a person to change kindness motivates us to change forbearance motivates us to change and patience motivates us to change one of the most effective. These are these are three of the most effective tools that my wife uses to help me to change. Uh, should she nag or be critical, which she is not that person at all. Uh, she just never has been that person. But if she were that person, I guarantee you that would demotivate me. If she was a condemning person, a threatening person, uh, that that would not that would not move me toward change at all. In fact, she doesn't use shame or guilt either. Condemnation. These are not the approaches that she employs. Uh, by the grace of God and the kindness of God, and three of the riches that she uses are three that you see on the screen here. She's a very kind soul. She is super forbearing, and she is amazingly patient. And I will tell you, to be on the receiving end of that, it is quite convicting. It leaves room for the Holy Spirit to work in a person's heart. You see, if the person is condemning and nagging, critical and cynical and shaming and threatening and yelling and and so forth, then all the attention, all eyes in the room, is on the person who is demotivating, the person who is doing all of that nonsense. And it quenches the spirit. It grieves the spirit. But when a person doesn't employ those six demotivating approaches, but they give themselves over to the spirit of God, and he is empowering them and the kindness of God, the forbearance of God, the patience of God. And Paul asked, don't you know, maybe I can say it that way, don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I have been affected that way, and many of you have as well. Perhaps you have, maybe even more of you, have been on the end of an authoritarian type relationship, whether familial or within a religious environment, and you have experienced the shame and the guilt and the threat and the condemning and critical and the cynical approaches. Well, you know that does not work. And that's why I I said in a cliche kind of way earlier, got kindness. If you're, not, if you're not employing these riches, as we see in Romans 2, 4, but choosing to implement the ungodly approaches mentioned, then you're whistling in the wind. The change will not come to your friends, and your relationships will continue to sputter. Therefore, I want to introduce you to what I call the encouragement approach. Now, even as I say this, as I talked about with kindness, I am not suggesting that you withhold corrective care. If you were to read 1 Corinthians, the entire book, beginning at verse number 10, Paul did not withhold corrective care. And this is where some people form a trip hazard in their minds when you talk about God kindness or the encouragement approach. They see that through a cultural lens, not a biblical lens. One of the greatest kindnesses that a friend could ever do to any of us is to rebuke us, is to reprove us. That is ultimate kindness. That is a person who loves you. Now, the operative word here is a friend. A friend who loves you will employ all the aspects, every thread that's wrapped around the word kindness. They will choose the appropriate one at the appropriate moment, and sometimes that kindness will be corrective care. Friends will do that to one another. Iron will sharpen iron. They will spur one another on to loving good deeds. And so this is all up inside this idea of an encouragement approach. And so one of the things that we have to do in order to align our hearts, I talked about a gospel recalibration earlier with those questions that I was asking. We also need a gospel-managed Sindar. A sinar is like a radar, but it's looking for a particular thing. It's looking for sin. And every human has a finely tuned Sindar. We can spot sin a mile away. And we can spot sin before they ever say anything. Some of us have such a precise sinar that we can judge the motivations of the heart. I say that tongue-in-cheek. But we have to make sure that our sin is gospel-managed because most of us have good sin detectors. We can see it coming. Uh, they are telegraphing it, and we're picking up what they are putting down. Sin is easy to spot. Now, I'm not suggesting that you overlook every sin because you don't overlook every sin so i was saying earlier about having a robust understanding of kindness or encouragement it's not this monolithic understanding of those words but it is an hd full color presentation of all that those words can mean and of course sometimes kindness is not overlooking sin but presenting it to them and letting them know in rebuke or corrective care However, those corrections are in a context of grace, always and forevermore. We want to make sure that we are double-timing it, working extra hard to build that white, uh, black, the white uh, uh, marking board, so that when we do correct them, the dot is very small in a sea of grace. So what we want to do is to develop our getting it right muscle. We already have a good Sindar. It is well-tuned, (laughs) fine-tuned, and it can pick up sin so easily. But what we don't have is a getting it right muscle, and that's what we want to practice. And a good way of saying that, the way that we like to say it in our home, is that we want to look for evidence of grace. We want to be walking around our home or interacting with our people with a magnifying glass. Scoping them out, putting them under the glass, looking for evidence, any evidence of God's grace in their life. And it's not that hard to do. If they do anything good, well, what have you received that God has not given you? If they do anything good, it means God is there, either common grace or God's grace to the Christian. But God gives us grace to do good things. And when we do good things, when we get it right, uh, we want to I- isolate that, we want to identify that, and then we want to talk about that and encourage one another. Four of the most important words in any relationship are thank you and you're welcome. When you see someone getting it right, thank you. They hold the door open, they pay a bill, they take out the trash, they help you in a particular Project. They send you an encouraging note. The response to that is thank you. It is one way to acknowledge evidence of grace in their lives. And by the way, the reason I say that we need a magnifying glass is because most of the things that we do well for one another are in the mundane moments of our lives. I'm not talking about the big spectacular things that somebody does for you. They write you a check for a thousand dollars to pull you out of a financial ditch. That is a big thing, but most of life happens in the mundane. That's why we want to we we want to unplug our Sindar and we want to practice or use our getting it right muscle because we have to look, because we're not gonna find the good things that people do in the spectacular, not consistently. But we'll see it every day, every moment in somebody's life in the mundane. And so we want to look for evidence of God working in a person's life, specifically in the mundane moments where they are working. Now, when you encourage someone for getting it right, when you identify the thing that they did and you isolate it, and then you bring it to their attention and thank them for God's kindness through them to you, It creates a ninefold effect of encouragement. And I want to work through those here on the screen. Number one, it encourages them in their behavior. I mean, you can think about this in a parent child relationship. When you do that to a child, it encourages them. You can think about it in the opposite as well. When you condemn, critique, threat, criticize, guilt, shame, or go cynical on them, It has the exact opposite effect and you know that and so when you encourage them for doing something right thank you for picking up your toys thank you for putting the lid down on the toilet thank you for helping out in the kitchen thank you for not hip beating up your brother it encourages them in their behavior it motivates by grace they also gain insight on how Jesus lived and this is so important like Jesus well I don't know what that means and so tell me what that means should I grow a beard should I grow my hair out should I wear a sheet should I put on sandals how can I live like Jesus well when you identify evidence of grace in their life this is the good that God is doing in you and this proximate how Jesus lived as well now they're getting brush strokes on the canvas they're gaining insight into how jesus lived and they want to continue to emulate that they learn acceptable behaviors dad like this well i'm going to do it again mom like this i'm going to do it again or husband and wife relationships or someone that you're discipling in a counseling context when they do the right thing you want to encourage them and motivate them by grace what are they doing They're learning acceptable behaviors, and hopefully the idea is they will become repeatable behaviors in their life. Both of you can praise God for his work, because this is grace. What have you received that God has not given to you? You did a good thing. That is a wonderful common grace. That is a wonderful thing that you have done. Let's praise God for his good work, because we know that he empowers, that he enables we're made in the Imago Day. We have the ability to communicate similar attributes that he has. This is God's good work in our lives, and we can praise him. Then number five, we can build them up in the faith. The old English word is edification. They become edified because of the encouragement that they receive. Number six, you strengthen the relationship. Number seven, you have liberty for future correction. And this has to be one of the goals, because you know that they are just like you. They are messed up. They're just like me. We're all messed up people, and we're going to need future correction. We want future correction from people who had previously loved us. Their prior love in our lives, their prior encouragement in our lives. Imagine meeting someone, and, and they have not encouraged you at all. In fact, every time you meet them, they bring corrective care. That will be so debilitating. That will be so demotivating. But when you practice encouragement, then you set yourself up to bring even a deeper kind of kindness into their lives in the future in those rare moments where you have to correct them And then you are exporting the gospel to another human being. You're taking the life of Christ and you are exporting it to another human so they can imitate the life of Christ, bringing us to the ninth of the ninefold effect of encouragement. You're making a disciple of Christ. That is the ultimate goal. That is the Great Commission, that we are to go and make disciples. And through this process of encouraging them, motivating them by grace to change, change. This is how you help someone to change. You're making a disciple. And so let's take a look at a few questions as I wrap up here. Question number one is, does the person you want to see change know that you are for them? Uh, This is a common refrain within our community here at Life Over Coffee. On our forums, for example, within our student body as well, we want other people to know that we are for them in a similar way that God is for us. And as you see on the screen, I have Romans 8:31 there where Paul said, if God is for you, who can be against you? Think how motivating that was to the Christians in Rome. Think about the context in which Paul was making that statement in that text. They were being murdered, and Paul wanted to encourage them to persevere, to stay true, not to unchange, but he was motivating them by grace, letting them know that no matter how difficult things are, God is for them. Now, in an echo kind of way, we want to be that way with our friends. No matter what you're going through, no matter how difficult life is, I am for you. I'm with you. I am here. And we want them to feel that, we don't want our corrective care to be detached from our from our affection for them. We don't want our corrective care to be isolated from as though we're someone who is not for them. Thus I asked the question, does the person you want to see change know that you are for them? Now if you are not for them, you don't have affection for them. even the most minimal kind of affection, like a person made in the image of God, on the lowest level of being for someone is knowing that person is made in the image of God. Uh, they will feel it if you're not for them. And so we want to make sure that our hearts are properly calibrated by the gospel, aligned to God's word, so that what we say to them, it'll not only sound right, but it will have the hope-filled effect on them. Number two, do they understand when they come to you, they will experience encouragement to change rather than manipulated into change? Part of this question sounds like the person who's called to the principal's office as a, as a youngster. I was called to the principal's office once or twice in my young academic career, middle school particularly, I'm thinking of. And as I was going to the principal's office, I was not thinking about being encouraged. I was thinking about being manipulated to change, manipulated through a long wooden paddle. Now, it worked. It worked in the moment. But like what I was saying earlier, it was not long-term sustainable change. It just changed me in a day, possibly in a week. But that was the full measure of it. And so when someone comes to you, what are they expecting? Uh, When your pastor says, hey, can we meet? What are you expecting? To be condemned, to be criticized, to be threatened, to be yelled at, uh, to be manipulated in some way? Or do you have a relationship with them that motivates you to think, oh, this is going to be an encouraging moment. And even if they are bringing corrective care, I know they're for me. I know they love me. This is how we want to be with those within our sphere of care. Question number three. Are they aware you have their best interest in view? Philippians 2 talks about having this mind in Christ, uh, having the interest of others, uh, counting them more significant. A beautiful passage there from verse number 1 down through verse number 11. If you haven't read it in a while, it would be great to reflect upon it, particularly verses 3 and 4 in context of this question here, that they are counting you more significant than them. Now, of course, if we have the log and speck, right in our minds then we know that we're spec fishing and they will feel that and they will not only know that you're for them they're going to experience encouragement rather than manipulation to change and they know that you have their best interest interest in mind number four are they motivated to come to you when they mess up because they know you will treat them as the lord treats you with grace and God motivates by grace, and they know that you're going to motivate by grace too. That's why when they mess up, though they do not want to tell you, though they do not want to come to you, they're willing to come to you because they know how you're going to respond. Now, of course, the adverse of that is self-evident as well, and I trust that's not the case, that they know that you're going to be mean, critical, threatening, and so forth and so on. Well, that will create an inhibitor, and it will not motivate them to change. And in the context of this question, they're not even going to come to you because they know what they're going to get, and what they're going to get will not be redemptive or restorative. Number five, because of how you respond to them, are they motivated to be transparent with you about their problems? Now, this is key in a biblical counseling context, obviously. We want people to be transparent, and one of the ways that we can facilitate that is by Emulating all the things that I've been sharing throughout this presentation. Then finally, number six Do they respect you because of your historical pattern of Christ like attitudes, words, and behaviors? This is a yes or no question. I realize that. What I would encourage you to do uh, is to screenshot these questions here. And then in a small group, perhaps, husband and wife would be great. Within the family dynamic would be fantastic, maybe even with another friend, is that you work through each of these questions in the context of what I am presenting here. These six questions could be life-changing, transformative. It could really bolster the relationship and deepen it even more. Our past cherished gospel experience with God informs us about our future experience with God meaning we know that God's kindness led to our repentance initially at salvation, and his kindness has led to our repentance and our sanctification journey with him. That is our experience with God, and that's what this first sentence is saying. Our past-cherished gospel experience with God informs us about our future experience with God. Therefore, our prior encouragement with others sets the stage for future grace in those interactive relationships. And if we have been good at laying down a evidences of grace, encouragement, motivating by grace in the past with someone, well, that's going to open the door for future grace in those interactive relationships, and they will want to come to us. The big idea in this presentation is the Lord uses the agency of humanity. In the transformation process as secondary, not primary, causal agents? What is your role in the change process? How do we help a person change? Now, before I leave, I would make an appeal to you, if you don't mind, I appeal to you firstly to pray for our ministry. Would you continue to ask God's good favor on our ministry? As we take the practical message of Christ around the globe every single day. That is a factual statement, by the way. We are cyber missionaries. Our resources go around the world. And not and they don't stay just in cyberspace. People print our articles off. They take them to our small groups. They use them in marriage. We get communication every single day from someone from somewhere uh, where they have used our resources, people that we will never meet, people that you will never know. Would you continue to pray or would you start praying and asking God to bless our ministry ongoing continuously that we can reach more people? We're only three feet away from The majority of the people in the world, meaning that we're on their phones, we're on their devices, we're just a few feet away from their hearts. I would pray that God would help to connect what's on the device with what's in the heart of the person. We're that close to that many people, would you pray? Would you follow us on socials, wherever you may be on a social media platform, and if we're there too, then please like us, follow us, and then share our content from those places, or you can find our content on our website. We make our content free, and I want you to benefit from it, but I want others to benefit uh, from it as well. That is our mission statement. It is it hope and help for you and others, not just you, but also for others. And you can help us that way by sharing our content with other people. And then finally, financially, if you are in a place to support our ministry, I cannot overemphasize that, because the truth is, this content is not free. We spend hundreds of thousands of dollars every year to reach hundreds of thousands of people around the world, and our team needs your financial support, and so if you as a local church can take us on monthly or annually as a business person, if you can help underwrite our ministry with a one-time or ongoing gift, and of course, all the believers If you could just donate a little bit or support on a regular basis, I would greatly appreciate it. Please help us to keep our resources free. Perhaps some of you may want to become our next mastermind student. This is our all online self-paced course. You can get more information about that course at lifeovercoffee.com. The title of this presentation is How to Help Someone Change. Subtitle. The Encouraging Christian. Thank you so much. I am Rick Thomas. You can find me at lifeovercoffee.com. All supporting members can come there. We have private forums just for you where we have conversations for transformation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.